Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Jessica Au. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, that these are unceded lands and the treaty has never been made in Australia. Jessica Auer joins us on the show today. She is a writer based in Melbourne. Her debut novel is 2011's Cargo. And today she's joining us with her second novel, the inaugural winner of the novel prize, Cold Enough for Snow. In Cold Enough for Snow, we join a young woman and her mother on a holiday in Japan. Now living in different cities, the trip is a chance for the two to reconnect and spend time that feels increasingly spare. As they travel from temples and galleries and eat together in restaurants, the young woman searches her past looking for a way to understand who she is and how as an adult she relates to her ageing mother. Join me as we discover Jessica Owls' Cold Enough for Snow. Hello Jessica, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Can you hear me okay? You sound great. Today on the show, I am joined by Jessica Owl. Jessica is a writer based in Melbourne. Her debut novel is 2011's Cargo. She's joining us today with her second novel, Cold Enough for Snow, is the inaugural winner of the Novel Prize, which means it's going to be published internationally, translated into 15 languages. It is so great. Congratulations, Jessica, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks so much for having me here. It is such a pleasure. I had such a time reading Cold Enough for Snow. I've seen the plot described as deceptively simple, but I wondered, how do you introduce the story to people? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that um, it's really just about a mother and a daughter who um, head to Japan together on holiday as adults. Um, and, you know, while they're there, they're doing all the usual things that you would do while you're traveling. They're, you know, visiting galleries and restaurants, they're walking, they're catching trains and visiting gardens. Um, and, you know, they're just sort of making conversation and, and really just talking about what they see. Um, but I suppose I would also add to that that I think that there's a deeper secondary conversation going on. And that conversation is very much one about um values and beliefs, um, the relationship between life and art, um, family and memory and migration. Um, and that conversation I think is quite indirect and it's characterized both by this really deep intimacy, um, but also a really deep distance. Um, and I think a deep longing as well on, on the part of the daughter, especially to sort of shatter that distance between them. That secondary conversation you described there, do you feel that's something that we all have in our significant relationships, perhaps unacknowledged, or is it something that we do we do need to go in search of? Um, I think I feel that we probably all have it to some extent, um, but I don't know how, maybe it just depends how consciously you feel it or not. Um, like I do think 
another part of the book is the sort of um, the problem or the, the sort of limits with language. You know, I think that um, language is this incredible technology in one way, but, you know, words have such varied meaning and the way that we say them um, have such varied possibilities and, you know, how we feel and what we mean really depend on, you know, so many things, ourselves, our time in history, our lived experience, uh, our embodied experience, how we feel on any given day. And uh, I do think that sort of, you know, the sort of thoughts or reactions you might have, especially in sort of maybe polite society or out of respect, we might not really actually be able to say them. And maybe saying them also makes them, you know, more conscious. So I, I do feel that it's something that um, is is around, I think. It really is remarkable. We live such contingent lives, often such individual lives, that we can find ways to connect, to bridge through things like language. Yeah, um, yeah, it really, it really is when we do manage to find those moments, I think. You, you sort of feel alive, you know, when you manage to actually... Um, I don't know, I sort of find that I, every day, I'm not very good at small talk, for example, and I don't, you know, you or end up saying things like maybe generalist conclusions or cliches, and I, I don't always feel like I agree with them, but then I just end up saying it maybe sometimes to fill the space. Um, and conversely, maybe there's a part of me that maybe because I grew up in a sort of, you know, middle class, suburban background and had, had this little sort of private school education, I'm always sort of really wanting to kind of um, shatter any sort of formality I really like, you know, um, maybe telling too much or saying too much or getting into the personal and the real, um, because I think that does suddenly lead you to recognise each other as individuals and it feels quite electric when that connection happens. Um, but it depends on the other person, whether they're willing to do the same. Some people might find that too confronting. Um, and I think I'm always aiming for that, but I think also in writing, that's something that's there, right? Like when you read a writer that you connect with, you're really, there's something in their consciousness or their lived experience that's reflected in your own. And that it, you don't even have to have a sort of similar background for that to happen. And that's sort of that idea of maybe that shared humanity. Um, you know, I, I love reading Carlo Van Nausgaard's novels, for example, but really we have so little in common. Um, but when I read him, I feel such a sense of recognition. And so I think that's something which, you know, is in writing. And if it happens, it's it's really wonderful. Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity today to to perhaps have one of those electric conversations. Yeah, hopefully we'll see. <laughs> Now, we begin the novel in transit, a woman and her mother moving to a train station, having arrived in Tokyo the night before. And indeed, the, the whole novel is imbued with movement from the past to the present and around the unfamiliar landscapes. As they move, your narrator slips between exploring the unfamiliar terrain that surrounds her and reminiscing of moments with her mother. And I wondered... What does travel, what does movement mean to you? How, how do those sort of dynamic states work in your life? Um, well, I think, you know, with travel, it's, it can be really fruitful for writing, obviously. Um, there's, you know, when you travel, there's such a sense of um, newness and wonder and, you know, astonishment in the world. Um I think there's a, a sort of 
small passage at the start of it where the narrator is catching the train, train sorry, through Tokyo and she's looking at the buildings and the bridges and things. And, you know, obviously they're all everyday things that we all see, but she says that in the small details and, you know, in the materials, it's all slightly different. And it's those little details that absorb her. And, you know, when you travel, the sort of the familiar is made unfamiliar again. Um, and that can be a really intense and interesting feeling because it makes you look at the world. Um, and another time I think she compares it to being a bit childlike. Um, and I think with travel, like, you know, when you're, when you're a kid, you're, you're so open and you're receptive, you're, you're learning things, you know, your brain just seems to be this sort of like open channel. Um, and I think because you're, you're trying to learn how to be in the world. Um, and as you become an adult, you know, you sort of go into automatic pilot, you know, a little bit, and you can go into this um, kind of rote mode where you sort of commute somewhere and you have no idea how you got there. Um, but I think travel can sort of, you know, restitute this kind of childlike view of the world in a way, because maybe in some way too, you know, there's a, a slight element of, of danger or discomfort involved because you don't know, for example, where you're next going to rest or eat. Um, you don't really know where you are, where the train station is, and that forces you to pay attention to the world. Um, and I think that state can be really enlivening. Um, I mean, so it's it's kind of an ideal way to be in a way you're not at your day job. You don't have all the obligations that you have um, when you're home. Um, I mean, also, you know, clearly for writers, you know, there's that idea of pilgrimage or self-discovery. You know, we so many writers write memoirs where they, they walk somewhere or they, they climb a mountain or they do something to think or philosophize or, or get over trauma. So I think that there is a kind of a literary element to travel as well. Um, I mean, I definitely love to travel when I can. Obviously, that's not really possible at the moment. And we're finding out more and more how much of a privilege um, travel is. So I think that also complicates things. Um as far as um, movement goes, um, it's probably actually quite the opposite. Um, I don't need daily movement in my life. I love nothing more than days where I can just be at home alone in the apartment and I don't even have to go outside to check the post. Um, there's something about uh, not necessarily boredom, but this kind of just a, a sort of endless day where I can just do these small little domestic things tasks or read um and you can sort of just think and you know get all those semi-conscious thoughts going i don't know what that is exactly but i find that sort of state of semi-rest um really important um so i guess it's either it's kind of opposites either i like to be completely stationary or i like to be somewhere completely different we have we have really lost touch with travel over the last few years as well and i i wondered about that whether I mean, I think I understand that the book would have been written before the pandemic or the bulk of the pandemic, but even in the editing process, were you conscious of of how unique Cold Enough for Snow would feel to a, a, a population that just hasn't done anything like this for such a long time? Um, yeah, it was written before the pandemic, um, and I sort of sat in it for a while before thinking oh, I should send it out and then um, COVID happened. So I think that timing was a bit um, bad and good in some ways. Um, I, I did think about that a little bit while going through the edits and how odd that might feel. Um, 
but in a way it was it was really too late and you can't really take that element out of the story um i think it is really interesting to see how because you know covid is this kind of global experience that we've all had how it is creeping into writing especially the novels i'm reading it it's so present and overwhelming that you know even prose which isn't really about covid can't help but nod to it in some way so i think that's been really interesting to see sort of history come so fast into our literature um again um but yeah there wasn't too much i could have done about this novel you talked before about um the way lived experience brings um brings a certain sight to a moment and the way we connect and i wonder if uh, our collective experience over the past two years has actually maybe changed the way we are going to read cold enough for snow because suddenly i'm i'm very interested in in movement in this novel partly because movement has been so limited and i think often we travel thinking of big moments but I, again, in Cold Enough for Snow, I'm fascinated by the small moments. I'm fascinated by the idea that I might do something very ordinary, like go to a train station, but it's wholly new and wholly strange and foreign to me. And I, I can't do that. But in your opening pages, I do. And it's just it's just lovely. And I think it's, it's brought something to my reading. I'm quite glad to hear that. Um, but, yeah, I, I wonder if maybe, you know, reading books now at – if they do have trouble, it's, it's almost got this like, like fantastical element to it, you know, because we can't do it. Um, so it's a bit of armchair travel in a way. Um, and yeah, it is strange how our perspective on travel has changed, you know, like even being able to go outside in Melbourne, at least we had this sort of 5k bubble and how unique it felt actually to, to travel, you know, yeah, to a different train station, to a different suburb. I think um, our relationship to um, travel and, um, you know, distance, I think has, has definitely changed a lot. Mm. Before I over egg this idea of travel, I also, I just had to note that travel, I find it always has a clarifying effect on my mind. I learn something about me at home when I'm far away from the things that, that prop me up in my day to day. Now in Cold Enough for Snow, the narrator is, is searching for something in her relationship with her mother at the beginning of the book. She, she said she had this impulse to travel together, even if she couldn't quite put her finger on why. Do you think travel is a necessary or even a helpful condition when we are searching or trying to gain some perspective on life? Um, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily essential, again, because it, it is so privileged. Um, but I, I think for sure geographical distance or just being away from all the usual things, the roach things um, can really help. Um, but I do think other things, you know, reading, contemplation um, can also contribute to that possibly. Um, I think in the particular setting of this novel, um, travel, you know, she is searching for something in, with, in her relationship with her mother. And I think that desire probably was always there, but I do think travel was necessary uh, for it to play out dramatically on the page, for example. And I do think that um, it had to be Japan in particular. I sort of did think about that a lot um, because I wanted the um, dynamic between them to be such that the daughter sort of had the upper hand that she was the one directing things. She's been to Japan 
um, before her mother has not. So she's really the one planning the itinerary and getting them where they need to go. And she speaks a tiny bit of Japanese. Um, whereas if it had been China, which is where the mother is originally from, or Hong Kong, um, the mother would have had the upper hand and the daughter would have been reliant on the mother. And then that sort of dynamic wouldn't have worked um, because I think in her searching, um, the daughter can be a little bit coercive sometimes and a little bit um, cruel. Um, at the same time, I, I sort of felt, I guess, it had to be perhaps in East Asia. Um, Japan, of course, is a distinct and completely completely different country from China, but because they do have this sort of history of, um, you know, side back and forth and cultural, cultural exchange, there was just this... Um, you know, the slight familiarity, I think, is enough to jog memories as well for the daughter to feel a bit nostalgic for her own childhood or to contemplate her mother's childhood or her own memories and her family history. So I do think um, that particular journey and that particular uh, uh, sort of um, travel was essential in this at this point. It was so interesting to me there that you you described in the dynamic that the, the daughter does have the upper hand by previous experience and language. But in the in the book, she very self-consciously describes the, the choice of Japan to herself as, as a leveller between them. She either well, is either fabricating or lying to herself about this idea that it somehow puts them on a level footing. What, what do you think was going on there with that dynamic? Um, I suppose I, I think maybe the line you might be referring to is that they were sort of both be made strangers in some way. Mm. Um, so I do think that um, she is conscious of that as well. I do think she knows that she's got the upper hand in Japan. Maybe that was um, essential. Um, but at the same time, I think she more was referring to the fact that she didn't necessarily want to, to take her mother to China, I think. And so they are they are in some ways on some sort of equal footing because they're both tourists in this country um, and, you know, they're both displaced a little bit and, and somewhere new. I think she knows both, really. Do you think that's um, maybe an important part as we as we grow and we have to renegotiate relationships that we, we find ways to level power dynamics that had previously been unequal, like between a parent and a child? Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, so do you mean as we grow up we should, or as we change, we should we want to find a way to kind of uh, be equal? Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I want to jump ahead a little bit to an idea because I realised I'm connecting with an idea later. And I because as I watched the young woman and her mother interact, I kept thinking about how we interact with someone and especially someone that we have a long history with, but maybe that we don't see as often as we used to, Um, um, you know, our parents, we used to see every day. We were reliant on them. There's a really strong power imbalance there. And as we grow older, I wonder whether perhaps we're engaging with a memory of them, the, the memory of when we knew them so much better. Um, and you also, you explore later in the book the idea of a, a pentimento, a correction, something that's been gone over. And I wondered about those layerings and the way we might make corrections, the way we try to have a relationship with something in front of us that also has a long history behind it. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, you know, it's kind of goes back to this idea, right, that we we often try and fix people, right? Mm. Um, and we 
we try and define them a lot. That's part of how our language is constructed, you know, so-and-so is like this, I'm like that. Um, and particularly I think in the sort of a parent-child or a family dynamic or an old friend dynamic, you know, that that can happen a little bit more. Um, but, you know, the fact is uh, I often think that actually we, you know, we have multiple selves, we've got multiple versions um, of ourselves and also, you know, we sort of change over time. Um, I think, you know, that idea of layering and, and pentimento could also be interesting in terms of just, um, you know, intergenerational sort of traits um, and how those things are passed on. Um, there's one passage in the book where I think the daughter sort of refers to the fact that she's she's got this kind of frugalness to her and she doesn't like to waste food, for example, and um, she likes to save things. Um, but that, in fact, is not hers because she has grown up relatively middle class and it, it's her mother's memory of poverty and that that transcends um, through into her. Um, yeah, I think, like, maybe the, the sort of tension in the book um, specifically is maybe between um, how we want someone to be versus how they are. Um, like, I think the daughter, um, in a way, really kind of, crave something from her mother she's she's had this sort of um university education in part because of her mother's sacrifice and she's sort of come into this kind of art world um and she's found that that education and that particular sort of um feeling for the arts and humanities has kind of given her um meaning in life and giving given her an extra layer of understanding um and she thinks that maybe her mother hasn't had that opportunity and in a way part of the trip in Japan is her thinking, well, you know, could I unlock this for her? Could maybe if I give her this, give her what was given to me, maybe then we would be on more equal footing and maybe we would reach this other level of understanding with each other. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, that maybe probably is not what the mother wants and not what she needs. She, It, it almost feels like she wants her mother to desire something more from the trip or want want some of the same things as she does. And throughout the journey, um, her mother keeps saying that she would be happy with anything. She's seemingly, you know, she's happy just to simply be with her daughter, um, which is also, it, it really resonated with me when I do travel. I always have this strange friction in my thinking around the idea that you're on this trip and you have to create moments they have to be moments of significance, but then it can take away from simply being in the moment. Do you do you see a, a similar tension between the narrator and her mother? Yeah, I think so. Possibly. Um, I think. I mean, I think it's quite difficult to sort of um, create moments of significance generally in life, but I think the narrator, for sure, wants in a way for her mother to have you know, maybe a revelation or, or to kind of um, feel something strongly. But, but like you said, um, I think the mother is just actually really just happy to have company um, and, and be there and be with her daughter. Um, so I think that, that there is definitely um, a tension between them in those two sort of dynamics. I love just so much in the book is about finding ways of being and being together. And there's a moment um, they're together in, an, in a gallery 
And you know, the narrator is seeking to find maybe a common language to discuss their experience. And she observes the main thing was to be open, to listen, to know when and when not to speak, which, yes, perfect. That's, that's un- underline that. <laughs> what do you feel we gain, though, from striking that balance um, and cultivating a talent for listening? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of think that is one of the lines where she is being a little bit didactic to her mother. You know, she has these sorts of like uh, teacherly moments um, that she wants to give her. Um, I'm trying to remember though. But, is that, I, I, is, do, she doesn't say that openly. Does she say that openly to her mother or is that an internal thought? I'm, I now, I have not put that in my notes. <laughs> I, well, I guess that's an open question for the reader in the sense that, you know, the dialogue throughout the book is is really indirect um i don't know if there might be this one line with a with a quote mark but the rest of it is is mm. indirect dialogue um and so i kind of wanted that to be yeah an open question is she really saying this um, all these thoughts or any of them to her mother or is she really thinking that or is she wishing that she said them again is that that secondary dialogue um that's taking place um but but yeah so you know um what we gain from that, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's difficult. I think that, um, you know, in society, we tend to really value certainty, right? We tend to value an opinion. Um, we, and having a conclusion about something and knowing it from the get go. Um, but, you know, I sort of feel that, I'm certain about most things, to be honest, I don't really know if I have a fixed opinion on almost anything. And, if anything, maybe listening, you know, it's it's kind of maybe even about holding two or three conflicting thoughts in your head or being comfortable with uncertainty. Um, I think as well, like I, I can't remember, um, I think it was George Saunders who said something like this that, you know, in in generalization, you can you can sort of have um, certain opinions about people or dislike them, but when you get down to specificity. The individual, it's actually really hard to hold yourself apart or to, to maybe judge them. And I think that's what novels do. They try and get as specific as possible about a consciousness or a character or an individual. Um, so maybe in a sense, you know, really listening to someone, really looking and seeing them and seeing their specificity, I think, um, you know, may or may not, I don't know, but, you know, help with that sense of empathy, I guess. Yeah, and it is it is so interesting everything you've just reflected there, because I, I came in, I asked this question with a real certainty that the the quote that I I'd pulled out was something self-reflexive that the narrator was thinking, t- trying to take that onto herself, that she could perhaps be in that space where instead of trying to tell her mother something, she could listen and know when not to speak. But of course, it is very different if she is thinking, wishing, or even out, out, outright saying that to her mother. You know, it's like, okay, in your in your lack of knowledge here, just know when not to speak. We do we do live in a world where there is a c- cacophony of noise competing to be the loudest voice. So, and I, I, I just really liked that sentiment. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think, um, so before they're actually, when she sort of says that, they're at this gallery, I think, right, and they're looking at this painting of Monet and she's just asked her mother, um, you know, a couple of pages before, you know, what do you think? Again, maybe probing a little bit too hard for a kind of reaction um, but then she's sort of reflecting as well on her own, um, I guess, university education and the fact that, you know, we really value a, a strong critical thought maybe as well and, 
that, you know, that sort of academic language or summarising or reviewing or judging mm. a work of art. Um, and that at first she sort of really bought into that and she she really aspired to be able to be one of those people who had certainty and had language. Um, but actually after sort of this sort of digression, she ends up thinking that, you know, maybe that is kind of also a certain type of speaking in a language that she maybe doesn't believe in as much anymore and that it is, you know, in itself a kind of falseness. Um, you know, I always think of like, um, you know, Ben Lerner's um, summary of like a profound experience of art and leaving the Atoka station where he's got this character standing in front of these amazing paintings, I think, at the Prado and not really feeling any emotion mm-hmm. and, you know, how sometimes we can, yeah, be expected to be fluent um, and articulate about something, but actually maybe you don't have a reaction, maybe you don't really know what you think. Mm. I just, uh, be- before we go on, I just want to make a really quick note that one thing that, stunned me about the book that I absolutely loved was that there are so many of these discussions of art and they're so open and so wonderful. And I found this so enriching despite not having the art being discussed in front of me, which is really, really quite wonderful. Sometimes I'll read books that that feature works of art and I need to have some sort of visual, like I'll go to a computer, I'll get my phone, I'll be like, okay, I need to see this to understand it. But there was something about these discussions that let me just sink into the moment. Um, I wondered also though a little bit about you, you really challenged me with, with this idea that as, as I've grown and learnt about art, I have brought so much of that, that language or a, a particular way of discussing and trying to come back to perhaps the, the situation the narrator's mother is in where she might be experiencing, I, I, I know nothing about her, but I got the impression that perhaps she was not as familiar with Monet or perhaps didn't know Monet's work and trying to imagine a moment of seeing a Monet without all of the baggage and the history that I I would bring to a viewing now. Um, for you, for you imagining this as a character in your in your book, could you put yourself in that that position? And how did it feel if you could? Um, you mean sort of uh, seeing a Monet and not having any understanding or, yeah, try, or trying, sort of... Yeah, trying to be in that that sort of that naive first experience of something. Um, I mean, to be honest, I actually feel that's how I feel most of the time when I encounter art. Um, I, I don't know, I suppose, you know, maybe to go back a little bit, um, you know, I think that the art world or having a kind of... Uh, maybe coming from a, a family or an education which does have this under- critical understanding of, you know, the history of art, the history of ideas and, mm-hmm. and culture, um, you know, that that can be something similar to, to class or something. It, it's kind of a, a gated world. It's a certain lineage. And um, I sort of maybe grew up, you know, in a family where, you know, we didn't really have too many books in the house. We didn't really read um you know, that, that sort of uh, language just really wasn't there. So I, I think I did get a, a bit of a shock, like the narrator does, going to uni, you know, having been a sort of um, writerly, readerly kid, and then you suddenly get to university and you realise that, uh, oh, God, it feels like everyone's ahead of me. It feels like everyone has this code or this language because, um, and not everyone, I, I this is actually just a perception, but, you know, yeah. families who who have the benefit of maybe um, 
parents who who are really fluent in that sort of thinking. Um, so I actually kind of feel like I I do come to most works of art, even now, you know, not really knowing much about them. I don't really know the right names of the painters. I don't really know much. I didn't know much about Monet really until I sort of, I sort of have to go back and, and read about them. Um, so I guess that the mother's experience is probably a bit closer to, to mine. So then I want to think about the way um, we, we approach that, how we, we move into spaces that we don't have experience or are unfamiliar or just or, or just feel adrift in. And there is a reminiscence where the narrator is considering a sculpture that her, her partner's father is creating and she's fascinated by it. She can't understand how he's imbued the material seemingly with life. And she says, I didn't, I didn't even know uh, enough to ask the right questions. Um, Tell me about that, that, that impulse and that quest to understand because there are so many ways to approach a moment that kind of floors us. And, and quite often it feels like people will they'll ignore it. If I don't understand it, it's not worthy of my attention. There is, there is a, a certain humility to be able to say something like, I'm, I don't even know how to ask the right question but seemingly want to do that. Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, the narrator is very much a sort of uh, character who... Um, wants to understand things, you know, she wants to understand uh, why things are the way they are, that she wants to understand the effect of, like, context and history on her life. Um, but, again, that question sort of comes out of, um, you know, that experience, I think, of being younger and just knowing that, you know, she knows that she's moved by art. She knows that she feels something when she reads something or sees something, but she can't really articulate why. And, um, you know, I think it's just, I don't know, I guess I feel like that's, um, again, if you, if you don't really have that language um, of critical thinking, that is maybe how you feel when you're, when you are younger and you do encounter something that moves you, you know, you respond to it and you know that maybe you want to go further into this world. You, you want to learn more, but how do you learn more when you don't even really know, um, you know, who Monet is or, or even what this history of impressionistic painting is. It's really difficult to ask the right questions. Um, it's really difficult when you don't, I suppose, um, to define the right language when you don't have it, you know, as a, as a part of your upbringing maybe. Um, and I think as well, you know, like, you know, the way art is made is, is really a mystery. Like what gives something life you know, or what doesn't and why do some people respond to some pieces or, you know, sometimes not. Um, I think, you know, if we knew we'd just sort of make them or do them, but every, be special. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think that happens every time you encounter something, some things don't move you. I mean, some pieces of art, you sort of sit there and go, okay, I don't really understand. I don't see what the big deal is, but then sometimes you encounter an object and you're like, this says something to me, but I can't quite articulate what or why. Is, is another problem with that idea of not knowing where to begin, not knowing what question to ask, related to the gatekeeping you mentioned before, have we, I guess in some spaces, we've created a feeling that if you're not ready to, you know, dive headfirst into the dialogue, then you don't even have a place in the dialogue. We, we privilege certain things and we use that as a way to keep certain people out. Um, yeah, I think I think it is really related to that. I think that you know, like 
Yeah, critical commentary, um, it does come with a certain education, not all the time, obviously. I think, you know, there are always exceptions and you can you can read a lot and um, try and under think, understand things that way. But it is a, you know, it is a kind of gatekeeping, I think. And, of course, through all of this, when we when we do get to go back to travel, I think some of these ideas are just an incredible way to in the same way you might map out an itinerary of places that you might want to go, I think in Cold Enough for Snow, you show us ways that we might want to be open and approach the new things. But of course, there, there might need to be a purpose to this and we can try perhaps too hard to find meaning. Um, and then your narrator at a, at a moment towards the end of her journey confesses to herself that I had one vague, exhausted thought that perhaps it was all right not to understand all things, but to simply see them and to hold them. Which, which again, it feels like a very beautiful, a very calming thing to feel. But I wondered, in your mind, was this an epiphany or was it more of a resignation? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't always know. I think maybe a better way to describe it would be that it's her kind of acceptance that it's the fact that she can't have an epiphany. You know, she's sort of gone through the trip um, pushing, like we said, for something, um, some kind of understanding, some new equal footing, some kind of revelation. Um, but actually maybe it's a sort of realisation that that isn't going to happen for them. Um I think it does kind of relate back to an earlier sort of conversation that the mother and the narrator have when they're at this particular church. Um, and the mother kind of says that, you know, nowadays everyone is, um, you know, constantly questing to understand things, to have enlightenment. But actually, you know, even if you understand something, it doesn't necessarily lead to any more happiness and it doesn't necessarily lessen any any suffering um, and, you know, that's quite a bleak thought, I guess, to have. And I don't know if um, the narrator necessarily feels exactly the same, but I guess it's maybe coming to a bit of a compromise um, between that view, her view and her mother's view. Um, so maybe it's a bit of both um, and, and maybe also it's, it's something that's for the reader, reader to decide. <laughs> I, think I, can, I think I can personally wholeheartedly embrace acceptance and compromise um, and it feels like, now that you put it in those terms, that has been thematic of what we've been discussing, the tension between speaking and listening, um, the tension between knowing the questions to ask and, and be feeling safe to ask them. Um, I just want to tell people again, we are, I'm speaking with Jessica Au and her new novel, it's the inaugural winner of the Nobel Prize and it is called Cold Enough for Snow. I'm holding it up because that's what you do on radio. Jessica and I can see each other, but... Um, it's actually really just, it was so fantastic. I got a, um, a, an arc of Cold Enough for Snow and then I saw the full cover online and I thought that's beautiful. And it was only a week before our interview that my copy arrived. And I'm just, I'm so, I'm so pleased because I, I, I don't keep all the books that I get sent, but I was like, oh, I want to keep this one. It'd be so, I thought I'm going to have to go out and buy this, but now I don't. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a beautiful that, design. I? <laughs> uh, sorry? I shouldn't tell you, I don't, I don't have to go and buy it now. No, it's totally fine. I think I, um, it's a, it's a really lovely design from uh, Jenny Grigg. Um, I think I really I love her work, and I, I love the kind of you know abstract impressionistic kind of quality of that cover. Mm. 
I I don't normally ask prizey related questions or things outside the, the 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 plot and themes of the novel, but I mean, winning being the inaugural winner of the novel prize, and this gives cold enough for snow entree into you know all sorts of corners of the world. I believe it's being translated into fifteen languages. What does that mean to you? How do you how do you feel about that? Is that something conceptually that is is real yet, or? Um, I, I think that the translation's probably not yet. Um, I think for the the US and the UK publications, um, you know, that is real just because we've been going through proofs and edits and, and production and things like that. Um, the translations definitely still feel really abstract to me, but um, at the same time, I think it's uh, probably one aspect that I, I'm most excited about. Um, I just think that translation is is kind of an art of itself you know something I really respect and I think it's such a beautiful practice it's such an interesting combination between like editing language creativity um, and all those sorts of things Um, so I I just I think I just really like the idea that those works will sort of exist in their own right alongside the English translation I think um yeah it it is really interesting I um I think there are novels that lean on their plot and they are plot driven and drive themselves forward. And maybe we don't think as much about the language. And then there are novels that that language is so very important. And I, I, I think I can say that about cold enough for snow. I think just the, the mere fact that I feel like I couldn't write a question without pulling a quote out of the book tells me that something about the language really resonated with me. So it's, it is, again, it's fascinating the idea that there are ways you have put ideas that someone has to capture and and that process is is really interesting. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've always found it really difficult to write plot. Um, You know, I have tried, but I've just been unable to um, every single time. And I think, I mean, it's partly because how I feel like life unfolds, you know, you don't, we don't really get conclusions. We don't get epiphanies. You know, life just happens. We often just repeat the same behaviour or the same things um, throughout our life. So I don't, it just doesn't feel true to me in a way. Um, not that I don't enjoy novels with plot, but I just find it really difficult to write myself. Um, and, you know, that was a real challenge for, um, you know, a really long time. Um, but I think in the end I sort of ended up thinking more about creating a consciousness, you know, rather than a character or a plot. And then in terms of the kind of ideas or the language, it, suddenly I sort of, I guess I was kind of reading quite widely and I thought, um, you know, in a way you can incorporate observations and, you know, more philosophical thinking um, from, you know, wider reading and put that into a character. And in a way that can form not quite the plot but some sort of momentum or can add texture to um, a paragraph or a page in the same way that action might or might not. So I think that was sort of, you know, where I sort of gravitated and maybe that's why it's ended up the way it has. I've, I've actually found that again, something I loved about cold enough for snow is like, I've, I've had these thoughts recently that sometimes plot and, and the standard kind of three act movement and um, archetypes that we, we recognize are perhaps, I don't know if, if limiting is the right word, but there, it does something to our reading. When we are able in a 300-page book to say at page 95, aha, I can see Act 1 
closing. And when we when we begin Act Three, we can say, oh, "I can see where this is is going." We're we're actively sort of pulling ourselves out of the book and into an experience of a plot that we think we understand. And it, it plots kind of they almost become jugs that we pour words into. And I, I just wonder what that that ta- does when we take that into our life because. We, we often see daily events or, or especially big world events playing out in in plot lines, which as you as you observe, like that's not how life works. But, you know, whether it's troops massing on a border or um, a horrible violent incident somewhere in a suburban area, we tend to look for, for plot devices and it fails us when we can't find the villain of the piece or the hero isn't ready to, you know, sort of, storm in at the end i i like books that challenge me to get away from those molds yeah i mean i think it's uh, it's quite interesting going from what you're saying that like sometimes one thing i think about is you know to what extent do we do things because we really want to do them or to what extent do we do them or enact them because they're from popular culture or they're from a plot that we've seen and you know especially when you're younger i think you're um maybe I don't know, you, you do kind of tend to get conditioned um, from even something like TV or movies or, or genre. Um, and, I, yeah, I always wonder whether, you know, to what extent is our agency really there? Do we sort of, you know, play into the drama because we're thinking we're this character and they're that character? It's, it's a funny sort of tension um, that we all do, I think. Um, but, yeah, I, I do wonder about plot and narrative drive and even narrating narrating things. We sort of... You know, we do do that from retrospective, but, you know, you sort of have a, a, a fight or a conflict with someone and then or, or something, you know, um, dramatic happens to you. Um, and then you end up, you know, we have this urge to retell and retell that story. But in the retelling of it, we sort of solidify it and we, again, maybe on a sort of plot line, uh, which I don't think is a bad thing necessarily, but it's a funny human urge right we sort of we tell it and we pick out the same details again and again and each time we tell it that telling gets smoother um but in the telling as well it's kind of um you know it's cathartic in some way um, so i think that interaction between um the, the sort of narrative urge and plot um back into life is, is quite interesting I, I remember listening to something recently um and I'm trying to stop using the phrase. I was listening to a podcast recently because, I mean, we're all saying that. Um, but I, I was listening to a podcast recently and it was uh, t- talking about memory and it was a neuroscientist and talking along the lines of when we remember, we are not actually remembering an event. We are remembering the last time we told the story of the event. And in multiple retellings, as you say, we smooth it over, which, of course, begs the question, where does the shape of the story then come from, the, the original event itself or some sort of, some sort of story mould that we have created for it to fit into? Um, yeah, got, exactly. I, I couldn't have put it better myself. That's, that's a really interesting observation. We've created we, – we, we could deep dive on this for, I think, a lot longer, but I, I, I would come back to why we started talking about this in, in terms of what has driven my reading of Cold Enough for Snow and your, your sort of suggestion that um, the, the conventional plot lining, um, plotting is not something that you necessarily strive for and, and what Cold Enough for Snow does is it breaks us out of – any, uh, I guess, conventional expectation, and what it meant was, you know, m- much like much like a train ride, we could sit with the momentum forward and enjoy kind of the verisimilitude of the various passengers. And I'm I'm 
killing this metaphor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I sort of just, I don't think the narrative moves very much, mm. you know, um, throughout the book, but maybe by the end, yeah, she just gets to this, um, it's not that she won't stop asking those questions maybe, but she maybe just accepts that she'll try less hard to, to sort of find the answers. And um, I think that's, as far as she could get, but I also think maybe that's that's kind of true to life as well. Mm. Oh, look, Jessica, this was a fantastic little sort of addendum to the interview proper. So thank you for thank you for sort of wandering down that that uh, plotting pathway with me. No problem. It was, yeah, I always like a good tangent, so <laughs> thank you too. It's such a beautiful book, and this has been such a great opportunity to explore it, Jessica. Thank you so much. That's it for this great conversation with Jessica Au. Jessica's new book is Cold Enough for Snow and it's out now from Juramondo. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. You can subscribe in your podcast app. It means there will be a new great conversation every week. You'll also get the 2SER book club popping up and all sorts of other bonuses. It is always lovely to share books <laughs> share books and book content with you i am andrew popel i will be back next week with more great conversations from final draft till then happy reading bye now